Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. So we got some good news, even though in this case you hate to say that there's any good news in when you know the circumstances of this case. But we got some good news late last night in the fact that there was two people arrested in regards uh, to this case, of course, of Savannah Soto and Matthew Guerra, and of course, the unborn child. And we called this case as we saw it right from the beginning, and it was ugly. It was ugly in many ways, not just in the actual homicide case, but in what caused it. And the elephant in the room that we were not afraid to say right day one that this whole case was about the drug trade. And it absolutely 100% was. It was one of the first things out of the San Antonio sergeant, uh, sergeant's mouth when he did the press conference late last night. But so that's not even here nor there. What's really here nor there is now that two people are going to be held accountable. And uh, the, the shooter, that you can't even fathom what he did. And he's eligible for the death penalty. There he is, you know, on the screen, Christopher Preciado, 19 years old. You can't imagine, what was this kid thinking? And then you find out he's got no arrest history. And you think, how is that possible? Does he have a sealed juvenile record that we don't know about? But just unfathomable to go from no arrest history to a triple, triple murder over a drug deal gone bad. And let's call it what it is. And there's his father, Ramon Preciado, 53 years old. By all accounts, a hardworking citizen, a couple of, of scrapes with the law far in his past from the 1990s. Again, is it that he would do anything for his son? I love my both my sons dearly. If one of them told me they did this, I'm not down with it. Guess what? Turn yourself in. That's what I would say. I think that's what most parents would say, you know. So we're going to go over the case tonight. And where is it going now from the prosecution perspective? And what was the, was the evidence? And we talk about the way detectives work, going from point A to point B to point C, and all the information they have to take in and the steps they take, the investigative steps they take to come across the information. And this, there was a lot of smoke screens in this case because a lot of false information came in from the public. So we're going to discuss all of that, and I'm going to have two outstanding co-hosts on with me tonight. So you're about to enter the off-the-cuff zone, real crime from a police perspective, the police off-the-cuff zone. There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir. They have the car stopped at 10th and Branch, Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger.
You know, I'm excited about tonight's show, so I'm going to get right into it right away because I don't want to lose one second of my time or your time because we got some really deep, deep pros on this case. And from the also from the NYPD, retired NYPD sergeant, professor at Albertus Magnus College in Connecticut, law degree, all around good guy, Professor Michael Geary. How you doing, Mike? Billy, good evening. Good to see you. Welcome, everyone. You know, Mike, you bring such a calmness to this, my type A personality. You can keep it a little calmer. The, the boat's not rocking all the time like it is with me, and I appreciate that. And that's why uh, I love having you on the show. We also have with us and probably another type A personality. He's all over Brooklyn every single day, driving around, picking up cannolis, numbers run, everything you can imagine. Just kidding. Anyways, a retired NYPD detective, real experienced investigator, straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. Bill. How, you, how you doing, Billy? How you doing, Mike? And last night I was being very calm. I was keeping myself in check, trying to mimic uh, Sergeant Geary. And, uh, but tonight I'm out of control. Yeah, I know. You know, I, I wish I could be more like Mike, but uh, that's that's not my personality. I'm know? fired up tonight, Billy. Someone dropped me as a child or something happened. I don't know what happened, but uh, I have this, this need to always be moving. Anyway, the great thing is that, of course, there's an arrest. Now, Phil, one of the things I want to go to, and we're going to, we have the arrest affidavit. I'm going to pull it up on the screen. But one of the things I want to talk about, because not a lot of people know this, when detectives interview people, and of course, before they interview someone that is under arrest, they must read Miranda warnings. You have the right to remain silent, blah, 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 blah. You hear it on every episode of Law and Order, ad nauseum. I haven't said that in a long time. But they're always, you know, they have to, and then when they waive their Miranda warnings, then the interview can proceed. Now, one of the things, a detective knows what happened. And he doesn't let, right away, does not let the defendant know that he knows what happened or exactly what the evidence is telling him. So what detectives do is they allow the defendant to lie. Keep lying and lie. Beautiful. Okay, let's take that down. And this takes hours and hours and hours of interview and interrogation. And then after they get that down on paper and they told their lie, now the detective will come back at him and say, look, all you just told me is absolute bullshit. And I'm referring to uh, the, the, the shooter in this case, Christopher Presciano, right? I'm referring to him because he told the detective that Matthew pulled a gun on him and he wrestled it away from him and shot him in self-defense. And then somehow he also shot Savannah. So when we know the physical evidence in this case, that story is absolute garbage. That's a French word for garbage. Phil, talk upon that, please. Oh, I'm so glad you brought up what you brought up because right out of the box, they knock on the door, the father opens the door and he says to them, I know why you're here. Now at that point, I'm letting him tell me everything. What do you mean? Uh, why are we here? He's going to give information. So he starts incriminating himself. He starts incriminating his son. At some point, Perhaps he gets his rights read to him. As long as he's giving information without me asking him specific questions, I don't have to read him his rights. However, once I think he's in the trick bag as a perpetrator, 
Boom, that's what I'm going to read him his rights. With regard to the son, Christopher, they probably listened to his story and maybe he came out with a bunch of lies, like you said. And I'm going to take it all in, write it down, uh, let him keep talking, go over it a few times, make sure that he repeats the same things over and over. Now that I know that he's made some lies, then I'm going to hit him with, I know you're lying, you're facing two 25 to life sentences, possibly the death penalty, or perhaps three life sentences based on the pregnant female. And again, we know by the physical evidence, like you said, Billy, I'm so glad you pointed that out. He's going to put himself in a trick bag for saying, oh, it was an accident. I was there. I fired the shot. Bop, 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 bop. But it's not, it's not, well, it's something that we call a self-serving statement. He makes a statement that puts him in it as wrestling the gun and it accidentally went off and killed two people and one of them being a pregnant female. But that's good enough to put him in the trick bag that he makes that statement. He's now got to face that down in court. Uh, that's exactly how I would have done it. Well, Billy, but Phil, you're forgetting one thing, right? You're forgetting one thing. You let him Go tell ahead. his lies. You let him. And one of the things is you say, well, when you shot him, how far away was the gun from his head? Right. The and contact you, one. You know he's not going to say he stuck it right up because that goes against his entire story. Well, but what I would do is I would let him tell the story, and you're right about that. I would say, well, without saying, you know, how far away was the gun from his head? Well, well, you had the gun in your hand. Where was he? Was he two feet away, ten feet away, five? And let him put himself in the trick bag for exactly how far away he was. Now, it sounds like if it's a wrestling match, it's going to be fairly close. But if it's a contact wound where the gun was very close to the head, he's going to articulate it was, I don't know, two, three feet away. And I think that the physical evidence will now be brought in uh, at trial and be able to impeach what he just told the two detectives or whoever it was in the room that he was speaking to. Well, Phil, even though I'm no crime scene guy, anything under 18 inches away is going to produce stippling. Yes. Which is little pieces of gunpowder that will be seen on the skin. That is scientific that will tell the investigator, tell the ballistics expert, tell the scientist he was he was within 18 inches. And even closer, it leaves a different I pattern was just gonna say that on the skin. And if it's held up against, it does something called tattooing. It just actually leaves a tattoo of the barrel of the gun on the skin because folks, when someone fires a gun. Out of the end of the barrel, if you haven't fired a gun, you haven't seen anyone, is fire. Actual flame comes out of the barrel of the gun. So what do you think is going to happen when it's held against someone's skin? It's going to burn a tattoo into their skin and then add gunpowder into that. And you have what's called tattooing and a close contact wound with gunshot residue. Professor Mike, I know you're sitting wait, wait, there. Let me, let me just add something, Billy, please. I Go know ahead. I just want to add one thing before, Mike. I don't want to cut you off, Mike, but Bill, you made that point about the close contact wound. It usually leaves a circular pattern, the barrel, course of the flame. And sometimes if it's close, gases will go underneath the person. If it's if it's a head wound, it'll go under the skin and leave what you said too, some tattooing and, and residue of gunpowder and different things of that nature. But this is where the crime scene, the medical examiner comes in and can tell you, no, no way that that gun was fired from three feet away. That was a close contact wound, very close within inches or right up to the person's head. Or so then with his statement, Phil, and what I'm really trying to get at for the people that are listening, his statement, really, he supplied the rope that will hang him. Exactly. And Mike, I'm going to let you go because you're the attorney, you're the criminal justice professor, and I know you're sitting there impatiently ready to go. 
Yeah, Billy, you know, the police did this right. Um, going to the location because they got the Chevy Silverado license plate. They know who it belonged to. Uh, they know some Charlie Chan drive uh, because they and they know that also because uh, Soto, uh, her, her, she did a search for uh, Charlie Chan drive on her cell phone. which so that was fabulous. They go there and they're pretty much divided in by the father. You know, they're not, he's not dragged forcibly into the back of an RMP and driven to the precinct. You know, he's not handcuffed to a chair. Um, do, they did it properly right near his own home. He seemed to, from what we can see from the affidavit, the affiant states that it seemed to be the father knew when he opened that door, he saw the detectives, he knew what was going on. He knew what time of day it was. He invited them in and he started talking, you know, about, you know, as Phil would say, you know, you know why I'm here. Why, why do you think I'm here? You know, that sort of thing. They did it really, really well. And then they got the uh, affidavit signed by a judge. Uh, kudos to San Antonio detectives for doing it right. Textbook. Really good. Thumbs up to the San Antonio homicide detectives. Fabulous. Mike, they did a fantastic job. And I would just like to say also, um, when we in homicide, when I worked with all experienced detectives, they were they were all fantastic. Some guys were more talented in some areas than others, and others were better at some things than others. But we all knew when we picked up a perp and we brought him in voluntarily. In mm -hmm. essence, he did not have he did not have handcuffs on. Was he free to go? We, he wasn't under arrest, right? So we would drive him into the precinct, and and he was a suspect in a murder or in this case i'm thinking of a double murder all three of us in that car on the ride from the bronx to manhattan guess what we said nothing 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 why because when we get asked at a later trial what did you talk about detective what did you talk about sergeant when you drove back to the two three precincts from the bronx nothing we didn't say a word we didn't ask your client a single question Oh, that's not well. It's it's very believable because we're professionals. And did you read him, Miranda? No. Well, why not? Because he wasn't under arrest, right? And that that kills defense attorneys because, like Cy Sims said, an educated consumer is our best customer. That's right. In the police world, an educated <laughs> detective is the best detective. That's right, Bill. Yeah, Billy, I mean, listen, in the ride back, if you're uh, taking somebody to the station house, if they make a spontaneous utterance, I'm going to listen and I'm going to maybe write it down if it's pertinent to the investigation, but I'm not going to discuss anything. I don't have to read him his rights. I'm not obligated to read him his rights. Once I bring him into the priest and I feel that he's a perpetrator, uh, then I'm going to read him his rights. And if he still wants to make a statement, that's all well and good, 100% legal. Uh, and that's just the way we do it. I mean, you know, uh, of course, in court, the defense attorney can raise and say, oh, how could it be that you drove for 20 minutes with my client in the car or whatever amount of time and you didn't talk about, uh, you know, no, we talked about the traffic, we talked about the weather, but we didn't talk about the case. And if a perpetrator started to ask questions, I would say, hold on a second. We're going to discuss everything when we get to the precinct. That's how we handled it. Exactly. I want to just play this quick. This, this, I love this sergeant uh, from uh, Moscoso from San Antonio. He was the talking head for the department. Uh, he probably hadn't slept in about a week, but let me play a little bit of this. I'll say that when we recover or when, when uh, the bodies were discovered on Danny Kay, uh, obviously the investigation began. SAPD detectives made that location and started collecting evidence. 
Um, one of the key pieces of evidence that we did collect at the scene was um, Savannah's cell phone. And uh, so our, that was given, handed over to our, tech, our technology team who was able to do the, download some information on there. With the assistance of the US Secret Service, we were able to get enough information. Um, and so that, that information was given to our detectives today. With that information, the detective, uh, detectives were able to uh, find a possible location of where the, the suspect vehicle that was released on that, on that surveillance camera, the surveillance video, a uh, possible location where that suspect vehicle might be. They made that location and sure enough, the vehicle was there. They did a little bit of surveillance on the video or on the on the uh, vehicle, and then um, were able to determine which house it belonged to. They went out and knocked on the door. Uh, the fir the first gentleman, the, the I'm sorry, the the first individual, uh, the father answered the door. He knew why the police were there. Um, was was cooperated fully with the investigation. We're right here to headquarters, and our detectives were able to start interviewing both the son and the father. Again, they were both at the home. They were both brought down here. And the and the um, interrogations began um, through interrogating the individuals. The uh, our detectives had enough, uh, based on what they said, there was enough information there to get a warrant signed by a judge tonight. Again, to charge Christopher with capital murder and Ramon with uh, abuse of a corpse. Mike, you know, I want I want to just uh, for everyone that might not understand, explain to our audience what a capital murder is, Mike. OK, thank you. Uh, I, I was looking up this today in terms of the difference between New York and Texas. Texas uh, Penal Code Section 1903, capital murder, uh, special victims category and special circumstances category. If you kill a, a child under the age of 15 or you kill a judge or a district attorney in a case, if you kill a police officer or a correctional officer, it's capital murder. Then there's special circumstances. If you kill during the commission of a felony, if you uh, kill during the commission of escape from a correctional facility, if you kill while you're in prison for murder, or you commit multiple murders, that all, they all that's a special circumstance uh, and that, that calls for the death penalty. And in the affidavit, um, that's how they list it at the very end of the affidavit. The affidavit, the affiant says that uh, the uh, he intentionally caused the death of multiple persons in violation of Texas Penal Code. So that's what it is. Those Mike, let me ask you something. What age makes you eligible? Is it 18? He's 18. So you got to be 18 years okay, old. Okay, because uh, I was thinking, you know, some yeah. of these states are getting crazy and they're raising the ages. 21. 21. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, they did that in New York and they made... Uh, they raised the age of a juvenile to 18, less, right. well, less than 18 from less than 16. Right, exactly. And you know, some of the worst criminals out on the street are the kids less than 16. Yeah, they so, got no fear. Right, they have no fear whatsoever. So in this, I was wondering, is it, do you have to be over 18 or did they raise it to over 20? But yeah. this is Texas. No, 18. In Texas 18. is a little bit, if this was California, it'd probably be 40, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so ridiculous. Okay. But that's so, yeah, it's well, I can't say enough good things about the San Antonio police, the investigation they did. They did an outstanding job. The police take a beating across this nation. And, you know, the whole we won't get into the politics, but the defund the police movement, all that nonsense. And the press also, when they, after six or seven days, the press will say, is this a cold case? Why don't you go have a cold case in the back of the 7-Eleven? Are you kidding me? You know? 
It's a little bit ridiculous, but the press adds a lot of fuel to that fire. So the police here in San Antonio, they were great. They kept their mouth shut. Mm -hmm. They kept it. And this is why they keep things close to the vest. There were so many things out on social media. There was a picture of the shooter that with no evidence. Someone decided to put a picture of who they thought the shooter was on Facebook and people were showing it like it was the shooter. And, and guess what? It wasn't. So right. how do you apologize for that once you put it out there, you know, and all kinds of false information because of the 24 hour news cycle and social media, all kinds of false information goes to the police. And what Phil and I know as investigators is that every single tip you get, what do you have to do with it, Phil? You got to investigate it. You got to look into it. You got to vet it. You got to see if it's relevant. You got to see if it has anything to do with the case or if is it just some neighbor that uh, the dog crapped on their lawn and they're calling up about that person to try and get them in trouble and, and aggravate them. So uh, again, it's uh, it's something that uh, it can sway you away from the direction of the case, the proper direction, but it does have to be done. Uh, in this case, I just wanted to make one quick point. I think that the San Antonio police did a great job and it just goes to show that we don't care about what the victims were doing when they were, became victims of a homicide. It's all about getting justice for the victims. The San Antonio police knew early on that this was something to do with drugs, the drug trade, a, a drug deal gone wrong. However, they still investigated at the same pace that they would any other case. And that's what true law enforcement does. And I think that's uh, something to be mentioned in this case for sure, because a lot of times people say, oh, like in the um, in the uh, Gilgo Beach case, they say, well, you know, the police dropped the ball because they were sex workers. Not true. Victims are victims. We knew there was corruption there in that case. In any case where there's a victim of a homicide, you're supposed to investigate it the same way, no matter what the victim uh, was like before they were killed. You know, Phil, that, that's true. But, uh, you know, even having said that, even in New York City, there's certain politics of the city that will allow for more resources to be put into a homicide that occurs at a certain location as compared to another location. And we oh, all 100%. know that's true. And the powers that be would deny that till their death. But if something happens uh, between the, the, the streets of 59th Street and 96th Street on the Upper East Side, they're going to send the National Guard in. You know, it's right. like, I'm exaggerating, but... It's reality you're talking about, Bill. That's just reality. Uh, the politics of New York City would dictate exactly what you said. Something that happened in East New York in, in a depressed area is not going to get the same amount of resources that the Upper East Side will get. It's simple as that. You know, they just put out a um, an arrest affidavit, and it's six pages long. I'm going to refer to... Uh, page three of this i'm not going to read the whole thing because it's it's too much we don't sit on here and read documents we we are the real popo all right and we know what happens in these cases we can talk off the top of our head we don't need to sit here and read documents but in this case i'm going to i'm going to put some of it on the screen because so many people uh have seen this document and they're sort of um enthralled by it it's it's on this let me see if I, I gotta get it a little bit bigger there so an old man like me can read the damn thing. Let's see. I don't know if it's all right. Uh, from the victim vehicle recovery location, your affiant was able to discover that the victim's vehicle pinged near Charlie Chan Drive and Cary Grant Drive around 23, 50 hours on the night they went missing, which was the 21st, I believe. Mm -hmm. The vehicle did not start moving again until around 23, 54 hours. 
That's 11.54 uh, p.m., guys. The vehicle then traveled to 5903 Danny K. Drive, where the victims in their vehicle were discovered on December 26th, 2023. So uh, four, three and a half, four days later, right? Your affiant conducted computer research and was able to locate a vehicle that looked identical to the suspect vehicle on camera with the victim vehicle. Your affiant did research on the owner of the vehicle and found the owner of the vehicle matched the description of the male that exited the vehicle on camera. Homicide detectives went to vehicle location listed above and found the listed vehicle at the location while at the residence on Charlie Chan, a person identified as Ramon Pricciado, reported knowing why the San Antonio Police Department was at his residence. Raymond Preciado informed SAPD detectives to speak with his son. Identified as Christopher Preciado, Raymond Preciado and Christopher Preciado were transported to the San Antonio Police Department homicide to speak with your affiant. The affiant is the detective that's going to sign this document. While additional San Antonio Police Department detectives searched the residence on Charlie Chan Drive under the authority of a search warrant. Your affiant spoke with Ramon Preciado after Ramon Preciado was read the Miranda warnings. Ramon Preciado admitted to driving his Chevrolet Silverado to 5903 Danny K Drive where he met Christopher Preciado. Ramon Preciado identified himself on surveillance video from 5903 Danny K Drive as the person observed exiting the Chevrolet Silverado. Ramon Preciado reported meeting Christopher Preciado at this apartment complex who was driving another vehicle. This vehicle is the vehicle in which Matthew Guerra and Savannah Soto were found deceased. Ramon Preciado admitting to assisting Christopher Preciado at 5903 Danny K Drive. Ramon Preciado knowingly treated the human corpse of Matthew Guerra, Savannah Soto, and the unborn child of Savannah Soto named Fabian in an offensive manner by leaving them in the abandoned vehicle. Your affiant then spoke with Christopher Preciado after Christopher Preciado was read the Miranda warnings. Christopher Preciado reported Matthew Guerra and Savannah Soto drove to his residence on Charlie Tran Drive to sell Christopher Preciado marijuana. Christopher Preciado went on to provide a version of events that were inconsistent with the evidence collected at the scene and from the victim's recovered vehicle. Christopher claimed the male victim pointed a weapon at him, and Christopher was able to manipulate the weapon, resulting in the female being shot. Christopher then stated that had the weapon pointed at him again, and he manipulated the weapon again, resulting in the male victim being shot. Christopher Preciado's statement is inconsistent with the gunshot wounds suffered by Matthew Guerra and Savannah Soto, and the evidence located at the crime scene. Christopher Preciado intentionally discharged a firearm at Savannah Soto and Matthew Guerra with the intention of causing their death. The actions of Christopher Preciado resulted in the death of Matthew Guerra, Savannah Soto, and Savannah Soto's unborn child named Fabian. Your affiant has reason to believe and does believe the said defendant, Christopher Ray Preciado, on about the 21st day of December 2023 in Bexar County, Texas, intentionally caused the death of multiple persons in violation of section number 19-03 of the penal code of the state of Texas. And uh, this is signed by the detective. I can't um, read his, uh, his shield number 2322. Uh, it's not printed, so I can't read his, uh, 
His signature. His signature. But uh, so we can just be assured that um, this was signed by the detective and uh, sworn to by the detective. Actually, Detective Goodwin. Goodwin is the affiant. affiant. It's it's uh, printed in another location. So that's um that's the that's the arrest affidavit. Um, pretty um pretty telling, Phil. And all the things that needed to be covered in that arrest affidavit covered and satisfy, well, satisfy the district attorney that they covered all these things so that he will have an easier case to present to a jury. Two things I wanted to point out, Bill, from that affidavit. Uh, last night, we discussed how we both believed that uh, the victims would be uh, uh, would have been killed in another location. We believed that the location was going to be within pro close proximity of where their victims were found. Turns out they were just around the corner. The other thing we pointed out, if the cell phones were recovered, that would be a treasure trove of information for the detectives. As it turned out, uh, Ms. Soto's... Uh, cell phone was recovered that was able to lead them in the direction of uh you know this this drive where they were uh where they found where they met the perpetrator initially so two big big points of what we talked about last night turned out to be right on track that uh the victims were killed not far from where they were found and that the cell phone turned out to be something that was very intricate in solving this case 100 mike um based on that uh, affidavit uh I think the detectives did a hell of a good job. And uh, why don't you comment upon that in regards to now they, they hand this good case to a district attorney with yeah. the icing on the cake. Great job. Great job. They uh, talked to the father first. The father understood what was going on. He knew what the detectives were there for. And, um, you know, they he made some statements at, the, at his home. They accompanied him. To the, they, they took him to the uh, police station, homicide unit, where, you know, you can better control the questioning because you're going to probably videotape it and you're going to read Miranda. And this way, you're going to cut off any def defense attorneys saying that you pressured the person uh, in their home, uh, you know, you browbeat them, you didn't read them as Miranda rights, you violated his constitutional rights under the Fifth and Sixth Amendment, things like that. And so they took him and his son, Christopher, to the uh, police station. They did very controlled interviews. You know, everything's videotaped. So what they did was they dotted the I's, crossed the T's. They did it fairly quickly. They did it the way they're supposed to. Getting the arrest warrants is perfect because now you've got a judge signing off on their probable cause. They did it right. They, 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 what they did is they tied it all up, any loose ends into a nice, neat package. They give it to the prosecution, and it's going to be very difficult for now for a defense attorney to say that the statements made by the father or the statements made by the son that implicated themselves in this crime, you know, were uh, in violation of their constitutional rights. So they did a, a great job making sure that the what they got in their investigations, all this good information, will be used as evidence in an upcoming trial. Right on. 100%. Kevin Cotlong, the alleged murderer told the investigators that it was a drug deal gone bad. It was self-defense and that he tussled with the male victim over the weapon. Both victims were, were, were allegedly found with, now you're keeping me in suspense. Now, someone, I'm going to piggyback your uh, little question. It's not even really a question there with someone else that said, why didn't they ask for an attorney? 
And one of the reasons they didn't was because he wanted to tell his story. He wanted to tell his story of self-defense. So in telling his story of self-defense, he implicated himself tremendously because the self-defense story is absolute 100% bullshit based on science, not on the fact that the detectives don't believe him. It's improbable based on the science of ballistics. It's absolute nonsense. So thank you, Christopher, for telling that story. And thank you for not asking for an attorney. And thank you for thinking you could outsmart the police. Excellent. Good job, Phil. You know what, Billy? Think about it like this. Uh, he didn't think this through, obviously. We always say that, uh, thank God, criminals aren't as smart as uh, they think they are, that they make a lot of mistakes. So he has this incident. He kills two people. He enlists his father to help him. A couple of days later, the police are knocking on the door. All of a sudden, the oh shit comes out. He knows he's in trouble. His father points to the police right to him. So now he's thinking, let me come up with a story. Uh, self-defense. That'll be something that I can hang my hat on. He tried. It's not going to work. Uh, the physical evidence is going to show what really took place. Um, you know, uh, where he was coming from to lure these people to his house and then shoot and kill the two of them and think he was going to get away with it. God only knows what was going through his mind. But I think that uh, I'd rather have him say the story that he said from a criminal, uh, you know, from a uh, from a, a prosecution standpoint, I'd rather have him say what he said, implicate himself to a point where he says it's self-defense, than have him say, I don't want to say anything, I want an attorney. So I think that it was probably the best set of circumstances that could happen in a case like this with regard to criminal prosecution. I mean, had he confessed 100% holy, that would have been the perfect scenario. However, I think that this is not bad. It's putting him in the trick bag, placing himself on the scene, putting the gun in his hand. So all of those things is going to be like a super high mountain to climb over for a defense attorney at trial. You know, we spoke a lot about in this case, uh, how important the forensic evidence is, but as important is the real popo work, the real police work, the real investigation work. Don't Which we know about that, Bill? All the types of work that no one wants to do, the grunt work, the canvassing, the talking to people, the pulling up, vouchering uh, evidence, the um, visiting with the family, the contact other law enforcement agencies to assist. In this case, uh, they were assisted by a federal unit, uh, the Secret Service, to do the cell phone work. I had spoken about perhaps they were going to enlist the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, because all of these federal units, not only are they good, but they have huge resources. They got lots of money. Our tax dollars don't go to waste on the feds. They cut the local police down more. The feds got like crazy money. So they did use a federal unit. They used the Secret Service because, guys, when they do search warrants, they do phone. These, those things aren't free. Like when they do cell site information, the phone carrier does that. They charge probably $1,000 a day to do that. So when the police department has to pay that, they're like, well, well a case like this, they wouldn't, they wouldn't backpedal and say, well, it's been no expense on a case like this. Right. Like this, no. But a, a regular case, they might say, hey, uh, could you get the DA's office to pay for this? Can you get maybe get the feds to pay for this? Because the police department doesn't have unlimited funds. And well, either does the feds, but they certainly have more money than the local police. Mike. Yeah, Billy, they do. They were smart. They and they got the, uh, the uh, Secret Service in right away. And that's fantastic. 
and that really seemed to put them on the right track right away once they got the information from um, Soto's phone. Um, from that point on, it was things were clicking, and that was great. Just realize that you know the the shooting location was you know you know uh, one block away from where the bodies were. That just tells you this is a local person, this is a local uh, drug dealer who did this. this. Isn't somebody from the outside? You know they weren't shot in it like you know across town and dumped it, dumped there. So it really really cleared up what they were dealing with. And they got the information from the Secret Service. And that's the wonderful thing. We talked about this with the uh, Gilgo Beach killings, the uh, Rex Sherman. Once you have cooperation between the local police and federal agencies and state agencies, you can accomplish so much more so quickly. And it's all about uh, keeping professional relationship that, you know, um, to assist in their willingness to assist. And they know you need help. And they did it real quick, lickety split. And therefore, this was solved very, very quickly. Good job all around by everyone concerned. Absolutely. Uh, tremendous job. And I, I just want to keep giving kudos to the uh, San Antonio Police Department because, you know, local police departments, they're not given the credit that they deserve for the, the work. And cases like this are really thankless cases. Uh, and you work so hard. And so much criticism, unwarranted criticism from the public. Oh, it's been six days. They don't have an arrest. They're incompetent. They're this. They're not. They're not telling us what's going on. They're purposely not telling you what's going on, because when they do make an arrest, they want to make sure that it sticks. Folks, if you like real crime, true crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. Police off the cuff from a police perspective. And if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. And say, share us, I mean, with your friends, your family, and anyone you can think of that would love three former cops from the NYPD. If you want to contribute to us financially, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel memberships with count them five different levels. And we appreciate all our friends, all our subscribers, and sometimes I call them fans. And most people don't mind that because then those people that do mind that, I'll call you friends. Those people that don't mind that, I'll call you a subscriber, whatever. But we appreciate you guys for supporting the Police Off the Cuff podcast. Um, you know, Phil, why don't we just go right to the Joe Murray commercial right now, and then we'll get that over with. Okay. Listen, guys, if you found yourself in need of a criminal defense attorney, Joe Murray is your man. You see him right there on the screen. Joe Murray is a retired 15-year member of the NYPD, and he's also a terrific criminal defense attorney. So he literally knows both sides of defense. If you need to get a hold of Joe, you can reach him on his website, jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe is a big subscriber of Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. And we think Joe is a terrific criminal defense attorney. Absolutely. Huge supporter of this podcast. Someone asked, I, I got to find it now in the chat. Do I? Do we think that, um, that Christopher uh, brought the gun? And I, I think, yeah, I think there's... Look, one of the things we don't know is because the San Antonio police didn't tell us if they recovered the gun in the search warrant. And right. they know that now. And so the question was, do we think that he brought the gun to this or, or that the gun was on, uh, on Matthew? No, 
we believe it's his gun. And they'll do a trace of that gun if and when they do find it. But the story of it is is that he wrestled it away is preposterous. Mike. Yeah, Billy, it wouldn't make any sense from what he's saying. If you just think about it, uh, Phil's talked about this. You're wrestling with somebody. Um, they pull a gun on you. You're there to buy marijuana. They pull a gun on you uh, before the purchase is made. Um, so that goes out the window. You're wrestling with them. And in wrestling, you get control of the gun, but yet the, the trigger's pulled, a bullet enters uh, Soto's head. She's dead. You get control of the gun again. You're fighting over it some more. You shoot, um, you know, Matthew in the head. And then, you know, you then, well, let's see, what should I do now? Self-defense, because uh, I'm pleading self-defense. So that means I'm a fairly law-abiding citizen. Oh, I'm going to, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to put Matthew in the back seat of the car. And I'm going to drive the car around to where it can't be found for like uh, four or five days. Um, yeah, it doesn't match. It just doesn't match. And all of that stuff, all of the medical examiners, uh, information it's all was sitting there in the police file when they brought um you know ramon and christopher in for questioning they did it right and um it won't hang together there's no way you can make it hang together logically any jury's going to look at that and say you know they will have heard from the medical examiner in the very beginning of the case and right and this ever goes to trial and by the time christopher ever gets up on the stand and wants to talk about self-defense, you know, they're, they're not going to believe any of it. No, absolutely not. You know, no, someone can I give my question. opinion on something, Bill? Like, let, uh, Phil, let me just say this before okay. I, because I'll forget. Okay. Someone in the chat asked, so what was, was the car dumped on the 21st? And if you look at the arrest affidavit, yes. practically, right. yeah, 2359 hours at 2400 or 0001 hours, it would be the 22nd. So yes, the twenty first, but almost the clock strikes twelve would be would be the twenty uh, second. Go ahead, Phil. Or else I uh, what I was going to say was, uh, here's my opinion of what I think happened. Now, don't forget, he was flashing that seven inch stack of cash on the internet. Perhaps this was a robbery gone awry. He lured him there to buy marijuana, sticks a gun in the face. Uh, I'm not giving you nothing. You know, he maybe stands up to him. Things may have gotten physical. There may have been some type of struggle, and he winds up killing both of those people. Uh, he panics, doesn't know what to do. He calls his father. They take the vehicle around the other side of the building there, just a very short distance away. And here you have it. Uh, they're, they're captured a few days later. That's what I think seems like the most logical scenario that I see. Could be wrong. Could have been a straight out. They pulled up and he just executed him. Doesn't seem likely though. It seems like it was kind of a spur of the moment thing because there was no plan to get rid of the bodies. It was just like I said, around the corner. That's what it seems like to me. And we do know because we had the picture of this young man flashing wads of cash on Instagram. And perhaps this guy didn't have a lot of money, a uh, little jealousy. I'm going to rob him. And it just didn't go bad. I mean, it didn't go good. It went bad. Yeah, I think that the the most um, common uh, scenario here was a, was a drug rip, you know, yeah. and was Matthew actually as rumored um, was he was he taking orders over the uh, over social media? Well, people ordering from him and was he delivering it to them? That's pretty damn dangerous to do something like that. 
you know, to meet someone who you don't know. And in the, in the drug trade, it's, it's like asking to be killed, you know, and, you know, when people talk about marijuana also, people act as if marijuana is the, the drug that there's no problems with. In my days in the homicide, there was a lot of violence associated with the marijuana trade. And Absolutely. I know in, in most places now, it's legal to a certain extent, but there's still an illegal marijuana trade out there. And there's still people, look, people know drug dealers have money. And that's why every drug spot is protected with a gun somewhere underneath the car, underneath the tire, hidden somewhere. They don't carry it on them because the popo is going to jump them and toss them and find the gun. But they keep it close by because they may have to dis defend the spot. In this little like almost like mail order or delivery service, they're putting their life on the line to do that because you're not dealing with stand-up people. Mike. Yeah, Billy, and and the sad thing about it is, he he has, um, you know, Matthew has his pregnant girlfriend in the car. She's nine months pregnant. When they're doing this, he's conducting business with her in the car. You know, w amazingly reckless. He he knows what time it is. He's been around the block a few times. He's been shot at. I'm sure maybe he's shot at, at a few other people. But to have your nine month pregnant girlfriend in the car next to you while you're doing a drug transaction, uh, that is so reckless. And it, it, it just speaks volumes about his, his feeling about what the value of human life is. And it, it's just shocking when you look at that part of it. Totally shocking. Yeah. Well, someone put in, why was the public told both were shut behind the right ear? I, I, I don't, you know, we haven't seen um, the pathology reports. We haven't seen the autopsy reports. So, all we were told was both wounds were close contact wounds. The police never said that. So as with so many things in cases like these, so many things are rumor and conjecture. A close contact wound could mean, you know, and they said to the head. So it could mean anywhere. But I, behind the ear, I don't know who officially said that, who of an official position said they were both shot behind the ear. Phil, did you get that from an official uh, police department source? Me, uh, you're putting that to me, Bill. Yeah, why not? Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't uh, read that. I didn't see that. Uh, you know, it doesn't sound likely that uh, they'd even come out and say something like that until we get uh, confirmation from an autopsy report, like you said, or from the police department. We know they were shot close range, shot in the head, uh, both victims. Uh, you know, uh, and I don't think it really makes that much of a difference. The bullet wounds are different if it's from a distance or if it's close up. These two victims are dead. We have the person responsible for it is off the street. Uh, I think that that community probably can rest a little easier. I don't think there's going to be any comfort for the families of these victims. They still lost their loved ones. But uh, I think that the community at large will just be a little bit more at ease knowing that this person is off the streets that would do such a heinous thing. Absolutely has been a huge break in the case of the murders of soon-to-be parents, Savannah Soto, her unborn baby, Fabian, and the baby's father, Matthew Guetta. San Antonio police arresting a teenager and his father in connection with those crimes. News Force, Christina DeLeon uh, joins us now with details on the case and how police found the suspects. Christina, good morning. Good morning, David. Good morning, everyone. You know, police say it was Savannah's cell phone that actually led to the big break. They were able to 
find it at the scene. And with the help of Secret Service, it actually led to the information that led them ultimately to their suspects. Police arresting Ramon Preciado for abuse of a corpse. The 53-year-old did not talk to our cameras as he was taken off to jail. He is accused of helping his son dispose of the bodies of Savannah Soto, her unborn son Fabian, and their father Matthew Guerra after they were killed by his son. Now, police also arresting 19-year-old Christopher Preciado. Police say he is the one who killed the three during a drug deal. Police say they were all murdered on December 21st, just before midnight at another location. They can timeline that because of the medical examiner. Again, December 21st, just before midnight, they were murdered at another location. Then their car was left at the Colinas of Medical Apartments uh, with no relation to anything. They just left their car there with the bodies inside, and that's where they were found days later. Uh, on December 28th, police released those surveillance images that we all saw of that truck pulling up next to the missing Kia with the bodies inside in the back of the apartments. And since then, police say they got a number of tips with information. There was a lot of misinformation out there. These two individuals are to, are the only suspects that we were looking for. They, they were arrested. There were many names being thrown around on the internet. Uh, those people had nothing to do with this. We, we vetted them and, and everything. They, they didn't have anything to do with these murders. So police say with the help of that cell phone information, they were able to track it down to that vehicle that matched the description in the surveillance video. Once they got to their home, they knocked on their door. The father answered. They were able to go downtown, give them statements, answer questions. That was enough to give them a warrant and get the information they needed to make these arrests. Now the district attorney will decide on more charges against the pair since there was a death of an unborn child. But for now, the father and son remain behind bars. I did some checking. Their bonds have not been set just yet. They're waiting to see a magistrate judge. And again, we're going to continue to follow the story. Let you know. You know, Mike, I never heard of that charge before. Um abuse of a corpse uh have you ever heard that in new york oh uh, yeah we have something called concealing a corpse um i've only heard of it once um and that was in in my old precinct uh people who are immigrants to the united states in the bronx um so, uh, one of their loved ones died and they wrapped them up and they took them to the airport and, you know, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to call, you know, uh, uh, the doctor. You're supposed to get, the, if they're dead, you're supposed to call the medical examiner's office and things like that. And, you know, and they were charged with mishandling the corpse. Um, but uh, it was probably from, you know, ignorance rather than, ignorance of the law rather than any, anything else. But, uh, yeah, in New York, it's it's a penal law section 195.02. It's an e-felony, concealing a corpse. In Texas, it's Texas... Uh, Law 4208, if it's a felony, if you move a corpse or you carry it away with intent to conceal it. And so therefore, just uh, help the father helping the son um, move that corpse. And, uh, you know, from location A to location B um, is, is a felony in Texas. Mike, what about unlawful disposal of a human body? Doesn't I think there's a statute in New York for that, too. Unlawful um, yeah, there probably is that too. There's a, there's probably uh, administrative codes on that too, like administrative code stuff. Yeah, it's um, I've only dealt with it just once, and that was like long, long time ago in the yeah. process. But uh, every once in a while, you get something like this, but uh, not too often at all. We had it once when there was a uh, a victim who had overdosed on drugs, and they didn't know what to do with the body, and they took the body and they brought it to another location. They were charged with unlawful disposal, I yeah, believe, yeah, of the human yeah. body. 
Yeah. Uh, Courtney on the screen. Hi, Bill. Did anyone hear gunshots or see anything? You know, Courtney, the timeline on the arrest affidavit is pretty damn tight. Mm -hmm. So they're using something that's giving them that timeline. Is it, in fact, the cell phone? Uh, the Marry the cell phone with the video of when the car first appeared on the scene? Like you say, I don't know. There's been no reports from the police that someone heard gunshots at the location where the homicide took place at such and such a time. I don't know that. Could there be? A lot of these places have what we that technology called shot spotter, which is exact. It's like a computer thing with microphones and cameras set up at the locations where the, the shootings are most prevalent. Could they have that? The police could have it. Guess what? They're keeping it close to the vest. If they have that, as, as I said, this is an awfully tight timeline. Very tight, you know, yeah. because 2359, the bodies dropped there. One more minute, it's the next day. So they have it very tight there. Phil. Yeah, I was going to say that um, once they know the location of where they believe the homicide takes place, I'm sure they did extensive canvases. If it's a residential area, uh, I would almost think almost positively that someone had to hear something, whether or not those people will cooperate and come forward with the information. You know, if gunshots are fired out in the street into a car, that's the way it seems, seems to me that, you know, that uh, the, the victims pulled up to the location and then some kind of uh, interaction takes place and then the shots are fired. Somebody had to hear it is the point. Uh, whether or not they're going to come forward, I'm sure the detectives are all over that area canvassing. And all we're looking for is somebody to say, yeah, at 1159, I did hear gunshots or whatever time it was, a little before midnight, whatever they say. Um, Venus Gal, a law PC law enforcement guy said the murder happened just before midnight on the 21st. It is curious. They seem to note. Well, because the time of, they interviewed the perps too. So they're getting the time from them. And also they have the video. So they're, they're look, the time is, is a guesstimate um, unless even the, the shooter, you think he was checking his watch at the time that he shot them. I, I doubt it, but really they would show, they would show the video of the car at the location, the two people, and they would say, all right, they have the timestamp of that. And they would say, how long was it before you got to this location to the perpetrator and his father? And if they say it was just five or 10 minutes, they narrow it down. And then they're going to have other ways of narrowing it down with cell phone evidence. And uh, perhaps there's GPS on the vehicles, different things of that nature. So that's how I think they're so tight. And maybe there's video evidence at the scene where the murder took place. We didn't think about that. There could be ring doorbell cameras. Uh, you know, my ring do uh, doorbell camera goes off if a, a school bus passes by. So perhaps there was some type of a, a camera video system at the location where the murders took place. And then again, if you see flashes uh, on a video, then you know that that's when the, the shots took place. If you have video evidence. Phil, I think your dash, your, your door camera is set up to, uh, report that the cannoli man has arrived in the driveway. <laughs> Listen, as long as he's on time, I don't care. We have to have a little levity here. This is such a, such a serious, serious case. But there is many uh, folks, those are all great questions and how they figured out this timeline. Is it exact? No, but it's pretty damn close. It's just like even the time of, of death from a biological perspective can be off by by a huge amount of, of an hours even because science predicts time of death through body temperature, rigor mortis, algal mortis, putrefaction, uh, you know, decomposition, 
lividity, all these different scientific terms. And guess what? It's not exact. So some of these timestamps that we have, specifically cell phones and video, they're pretty damn close, pretty damn close to giving us the exact time. Mike? Yeah, and Billy, that's so useful uh, because once you work out a chronology of, of, a, of, a, of them leaving the house or maybe, uh, you know, Miss Soto getting a text message or, or, you know, or, you know, meet at this location or, um, you know, that sort of thing, or perhaps, you know, Matthew Guerra um, getting a text message on his phone. It's lost in this, in this time. But however, you know, that sort of thing, it gives you a location. And so you can do a chronological replay of what happened. And therefore, you get a chronological replay of, you know, what the neighborhood, what the time was, what the neighborhood looked like, who were the people coming and going, you know, what stores were open, what people had their lights on in the neighborhood. You do a canvas and you see there's an old lady who's up half the night. You know, you, you, you know, it happened around midnight. You see her there. You make all these questions to all the people that you do your canvas. It gives you a great uh, way to just you know, engineer the crime scene from the from going from the finding the the the, the vi victims there and going re-engineering it backwards and trying to figure everything out and that's fantastic and um, it's so useful because it really narrows down the possibility of a defendant trying to worm their way out of something by saying they weren't there they were it was an hour earlier or half hour before or something like that. It's so important, all this technological data to narrowing down uh, a, a defendant's ability to uh, weasel out of a criminal charge. 100%. Well, quick, quick, quick point about uh, timelines. Every affidavit that I ever signed, mm -hmm. when it referred to time, it always said at approximately 2359 hours or approximately 0400 hours, whatever it was. So that gave you a little bit of leeway because sometimes a video camera could be off by a minute or two. However, when you inspect it, you, you, you check the time and you see the video camera, maybe it's off by two minutes. So you know you could adjust a little bit. Things like that will be brought out in court, but that's why they use that word approximately. Absolutely. Let me play this here. New charges. The picture the of night for the father and son arrested last night for the deaths of. It's that feeding well. Pregnant woman and her boyfriend. The new charges are in addition to the original charges we first told you about on Ken's5.com. Ken's5 reporter Zach Briggs joins us live with the details. Zach. Well, Zach's going to give us the details any minute now, as soon as this thing loads in. And I don't know why it's... Uh, it's dragging a little bit. It's dragging a little bit. I may have to pull Zach off the screen if this can... Christopher Preciado yeah. pulled the trigger with the intent to kill Soto and Guetta. And now both father and son are locked up here at Bear County Jail. Now, as earlier today, the Preciados face additional charges, additional initially charged with capital murder. Christopher now faces charges of abuse of a corpse and alter, destroy, conceal of a corpse. As for his father, 53-year-old Ramon Preciado, he's charged with abuse of a corpse and just added this afternoon, alter, destroy, conceal of a corpse as well. Arresting documents indicate police were able to use Soto's cell phone and that surveillance.
You know, we had mentioned released last week to pinpoint where the suspects live just blocks away from the crime scene. Detectives say Ramon answered the door, saying he knew why they were there. Christopher and Ramon were interrogated off site. According to the arrest affidavit, Ramon admitted to being the person leaving the truck in the surveillance video. Interacting with his son, who was in the victim's Kia. He was not there during the commission of the murders. He was there kind of, I guess he was called afterwards to help dispose or help his son. Now it is still unclear where exactly the killings of... That's an amazing thing that it's not clear yet where the, the killings actually occurred. Savannah Soto and Matthew Guetta took place, but we do know from the DA's office that Christopher Preciado could face an additional count of capital murder, according to Texas law, uh, for the death. So for the death of the unborn child, he could face uh, an additional charge, especially since the, uh, the unborn child, uh, she was in her ninth month. She was actually late to deliver she was uh she was going to be induced i think yeah she had to be induced she was days late so we could all conjecture about that i just want to make a a couple of points before we um before we say uh sayonara look in any of these cases we are absolutely uh caring people and we're not heartless and we feel for these families and we feel for these victims but we also realize from our police career that when you play in this arena, when you play in the drug arena and you're selling drugs, whatever happens to you is basically it's going to happen because it's a violent business and no one makes it past the age of 25 in that business, you know? And if you're going to try to go out on the street and sell drugs, you're not going to live very long. And again, we are sympathetic to the families, the friends, the loved ones of these folks but it's not something we can just pretend doesn't exist. You know, uh, there's Matthew Guerra's family and you can see on their faces, they're, of course, they're heartbroken. You know, they're heartbroken and nothing will bring him back. Nothing will bring Savannah Soto back. But it's the old expression in the Bible. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. Phil, your final words. My final words are this, um, obviously thoughts and prayers for the family, uh, justice for the victims. One thing I wanted to make a point of, it seems a little bit unusual that the perpetrator in this case, Christopher Preciado doesn't have a criminal record, uh, maybe has a youthful offender status that's sealed and we don't know about it, but usually people that, uh, are involved in this type of a situation usually have a violent past. This was extreme violence. I was just a little taken back by that. Uh, unusual, but not impossible is what I would say. And I think that going forward, we're just uh, going to hope that there's going to be a, uh, a trial with convictions. Uh, I could see possibly the father being uh, offered some type of a deal to testify with the information that he gave against his son. But I guess that all remains to be seen. Um, and uh, that's it. Again, just uh, thoughts and prayers for the family and for the victims. Mike, final words. I think Phil said it right. I want to know what was going on in the head of the of Christopher um, when he met, when he contacted Soto and Guerra and and did this. Um, was it a cold blooded hit? Was it really just I just want to buy some marijuana and things went went you know awry? 
I really would love to know that part because it is odd, as Phil said, somebody who's you know 19 years old and then the first time that they we know of an arrest is for uh, a triple murder. Very, very perplexing. I'd like to know more about that. Absolutely. Alicia uh, Gallegos, thank you so much for becoming part of the Police Off the Cuff family. Welcome aboard. Uh, any of you folks listening tonight, if you're not subscribed, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell, and share us with your friends and family. We appreciate that. And uh, like the, I think this has been a um, really good coverage of this case. Uh, I'm proud of the work we did on this case. I think uh, we all have that teacher background where we want to explain what we do, and we're proud of what we do and what we've done, and we'd like to share that with you guys. So, folks, thank you so much for tuning in tonight. Have a great night, and God bless. Stay safe, everyone. Okay. One episode.